0: I mean, it's not a book. I mean, it really should not. It's not a book. It's not even a long article. Mm. It's sort of...
2: Well, as we're into ever-short book. No,
1: no, no. I mean, it it makes this look like War and Peace. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to the FT Business Book Challenge podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor. With me are columnists Andrew Hill and Lucy Kellaway. Welcome. Hello. The idea is simple. We're challenging you to read six classic business books in 12 weeks. Each book is chosen by an FT columnist. You get two weeks to read it before we drag our colleagues back into the studio to talk about why all business leaders should read their choice of book. And for those too busy to read, we bring you a bluffer's guide at the end of the show. Join the discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag FTBizBooks or email us at businessbookclub@ft.com. Also, a heads up for those who have an appetite for more business books, the FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award has reached its climax. The winner is announced on November 22nd. To read extracts from the shortlisted books and find out what won, go to ft.com forward slash book award. This week, we've reached our fourth challenge. In episode five, Lucy set us the task of reading The One Minute Manager by Ken Blanchard and Spencer Johnson. But before we get to that book, here's the question we always start with. Lucy, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading um, something that was on the book, A Shortlist. It's written
0: by a Chinese um, a Chinese woman who's lived in Canada all of her life. And it's called Do Not Say You Have Nothing. And she's um, Madeline Chen. Mm-hmm. And what brought you to that book? Well, actually, I saw it in a bookshop and uh, (laughs) I still go into, I know, I still go into bookshops and I still pick up books and think, do I fancy that? Um, I thought it looked the most interesting thing on the list. And it's a sort of, it's an account of... China over the last hundred years, um, told through a woman's family. It's incredibly depressing, but very beautifully written. It's um, fiction, not fact. Yeah, yeah, it's fiction. Yeah. It's fiction. It's, yeah, it's sort of lyrical and beautiful and, and sort of oppressive and scary. But if you're
1: in the mood, it's just the thing. When do you find time to read? You must be incredibly busy. I know there's lots of demands on your time. You're a public speaker. You're involved in all sorts of projects. How do you read? Where do oh, you well, I've, find the time? I've always read books before I go to sleep. And I can, in fact, I can't sleep
0: without a book, so mm. I read myself to sleep. And a book like this, the trouble is, I have gone on reading the same page every night when I, you know, I read it, <laughs> and then I go to sleep while I'm reading it. And then I have to read the same page, so I have been actually stuck on um, page 164 <laughs> for quite a few days. But I am persevering because it's jolly good. But don't you
2: find when you get going, because I also read it just before going to sleep, that you then start reading it in other places as well and trying to squeeze in time? That's what I do.
0: Well, I read it whenever I'm not taking my bike and I'm going on the on the tube. I ah, read on yes. the tube. Read on the
2: bike probably, but it uh, seems, inadvisable.
0: It seems sort of vaguely decadent to sit in a chair during the weekend no, and sort I of agree. read a book and I, there's no reason why it ought to because we do a whole lot of more sort of moronic things at the weekend without a pang of guilt But but I only do that if I'm absolutely obsessed with whatever I'm reading.
2: Andrew, when do you read? Same as uh, Lucy, really, just before going to going to bed. But I, I commute in on the trains. I don't usually read uh, novels on the train, but mm. I, but if I'm really obsessed with something, I start using the train journey. I'm a very fast reader, actually, so mm. I I can race through things mm. uh, on the train if I get going. Oh, well,
0: I'm jealous. I'm a very slow <laughs> reader, painfully slow, so there's no racing at all.
1: What, what are you reading at the moment, Andrew?
2: So I just came back from a trip to um, uh, Mumbai and I decided I would read or download a few books, a few novels or, or fiction about India. First, what, what, first trip. What, what were
1: you doing in Mumbai?
2: So this was a, a business trip interviewing people on you know management and leadership issues and, and trying to kind of get a tiny, tiny window into vast country and all its... Business challenges. So the the novels and fiction that I downloaded were a kind of offset to that. And so uh, one book of short stories that I've read is by Vikram Chandra called Love and Longing in Bombay, which are wonderful little portraits, really, of of individuals and lifestyle and uh, life in life in Bombay, told in a rather wonderful way. I used to read Joyce's Dubliners for. Mm. O level English and that it's rather similar to those kinds of stories picking on individuals.
1: Did it bring you the insight that you were hoping for into the, the this new country?
2: I think it did to a degree you don't you're obviously reading something where you only know a tiny part. Of it. But combined with some of the visits that uh, I did and a little bit of tourism on the side, it was quite a nice way to kind of feel you were bringing a little bit of the city to life that you might not ever see, in, even in a lifetime of visits.
1: And were there management
2: lessons? management lessons well there's a brother there's a there 's a great story called Shakti about a, a woman and her husband who are rising up nouveau riche in the world of uh, of Bombay wealth, which there are huge inequalities as everybody knows and they literally rise up the Malabar Hill, which is the kind of posh area of Mumbai as they create wealth but they have to find their way into high society and it 's essentially a story about the use of money and connections and getting into society through through making it in modern mumbai which i think has parallels with some of the business stories that are that are prominent in uh, Indian business.
1: Well, I, th- I think that's why many people read business books. In fact, lots of the, if we look back over the series, lots of the business books that we've covered in the series have been on that theme. If you think of Andrew Carnegie yes. you know, in particular, I mean, that, that really stands out. And that's what makes the, the genre irresistible.
2: Yeah, and that is actually what, I mean, just one of the things to take away from India was this huge sense of kind of opportunity that that I don't think you get in in western europe or or even the united states these days in quite the same way vast problems but vast opportunities.
1: Lucy is that coming through in your in your book? Oh, well, um <laughs>
0: I don't know, it seems slightly trite to draw management lessons from something quite so cataclysmic, but, but I mean, yeah, it says that if you kill people for their beliefs uh, and um, make them starve to death, they're not going to be quite so productive. I guess it's one lesson you could, um, you could take from it. But yeah, I mean more generally, it's about the horror of author- authoritarianism and how, a worse, that leads to death, but it certainly doesn't lead to everybody working very happily to make their country more productive.
1: Unlike those workers who are employed by the one-minute manager, your choice of book for the FT Business Book Challenge, first published in 1982... According to its authors, it has sold 13 million copies. uh, Written by two US management experts, Ken Blanchard describes himself as one of the most influential leadership experts in the world. Uh, (laughs) It's incredibly short. It can be read in under an hour by pretty much anyone. It's just over 100 pages. And we always read out the blurb on this podcast. And this blurb is... Just as brief as the book itself. Uh, This book will help you find meaning in your work and make your life better. Lucy, why should every business leader read The One Minute Manager?
0: Well, I don't think they should read The One Minute Manager for a start. The reason why I chose this book is because it's incredibly short, as you have pointed out. Even me being a snail-like reader... It was a little bit more than an hour, but then I was taking notes as I went. I chose this book because it's incredibly famous, incredibly short. And until this weekend, I hadn't actually read it. So I was very, very curious. (laughs) You know, as you say, it's been around a hell of a long time. It's become a catchphrase. And I was really interested to see, does it have anything to tell us now? And Andrew is, is looking sort of... Slightly, kind of cryptic, stroke disapproving on queasy, the, queasy even. even, and even though I've t- spent my whole working career taking the piss out of cheesy things, the book is a sort of parable. It's written um, there's a sort of there's a young, keen young manager who goes to interview the the one minute manager about what his secrets are, and it's all written in a sort of very lame kind of narrative, <laughs> but at the same time. I kind of loved it. It was very simple, very very clear, and some of the messages are true and the rest are a lie, but maybe we can get onto that in a second.
1: I mean it's, it's it's interesting that you talk about the style being it's in the style of a parable. I don't know if you thought this when you were reading it, but when I was reading it, I thought it's quite biblical, isn't it? It's almost like the the one minute manager has the truth and he is dispensing the truth to the curious young aspirational manager and all his employees speak of him with this great reverence and this great you know, knowing and all is slowly revealed in this little story it's strangely biblical well I don't
0: it? know I, I think that, that the writers of the Bible should sue you for saying that um, <laughs> that the language of the Bible is absolutely beautiful, poetic, metaphorical uh, yeah. hugely rich about the human condition this is banal to a fault. <laughs> I'll just read you the first sentence, and I, I'm not recognising this from the Bible at all. Once there was a bright young man who was looking for an effective manager. That doesn't sound very biblical to me. What it does sound, though, is very, very clear. Yeah, really. And... Clarity and brevity are the two most important things that there is in all writing and particularly in business book writing. Andrew, you know this for all the blinking books you have to plough through every year for the prize. (laughs) And, you know, it was Winston Churchill or whoever it was saying, I'm sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to make it shorter. The same thing applies. and. What this book is so brilliant at doing is it's it knows what it's about and it tells you very, very clearly.
2: Yeah. Now, so I, I have a sort of sneaking admiration for this book, partly jealousy, because Lucy and I labour every week to come up with something new to say <laughs> in a column. This is probably about eight, nine columns length mm-hmm. uh, yeah. in total. They've written one thing. They've written it, as she says, very clearly, and they've sold 13 million of it. <laughs> Just, and and what's more, derivatives of it in, in ways that we can only imagine. So we're in the mugs game of trying to invent something new every week to say about management and leadership and, and business, and they've managed one, a one-off...
0: Well, I yeah. don't know. Speak for yourself, Andrew. I'm not trying to think of something new to say, because I don't think there is anything much new to say. I'm trying to think... Well, we're
2: trying to think of something different from last week.
0: Definitely. Oh, yes. <laughs> Although, I don't know, some of the old classics I find, you know, they weren't <laughs> last time, let's try them again. But maybe we should just tell people at this point what the insight, such as it is, yes. of this book. So what the insight, such as it is, is, is that... What makes the one-minute manager so special and why he can afford to manage in one minute is he has stripped down managing people into three key parts. The first is that you've got to set very clear goals for everybody. And, they, and he calls them one-minute goals and you've got to re, write them down in a maximum of 250 words on one sheet of paper. So that is the goal setting. Then you give one-minute praisings to people, you try and catch them doing something right, and you praise them, and then you catch them doing something wrong, and you give them a bollocking. Although... <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't call them that. That's no, funny. well, actually... Reprimand. This, yeah, the one-minute reprimand. <laughs> the one minute... And so when I first opened this book, an absolute shiver of pleasure ran through me at the word reprimand, because it was fine in the 1980s, but it's absolutely not fine in the cheesy age of management that we're now in and the idea that one of the three principles of managing was giving people a bollocking stroke reprimand was thrilling to me and and just as we
1: were chatting before
0: this Helen you've told me something that makes me very very sad
1: yes now I couldn't get hold of the classic edition of the one minute manager so I had to get hold of the updated one minute manager which is called the new one minute manager still by the same author's but it's been rewritten for the digital age and it is it's rebranded the reprimands as redirects which is to say that you don't attack people you don't criticize them but you just gently refocus them that's very uh, what do you think about yeah i'm so i mean i feel a column coming on i really <laughs> really do
0: the fact that we you know a redirect who wants a redirect i mean if my manager came up and said you know lucy time for a redirect I would, yeah, I, I would not feel at all happy about that. it's
2: also implying that if you get something wrong simply by redirecting, redirecting it, it'll be right. And that's not always true.
0: But look, if we can, can we get back to the main principles of this? The thing that is genius, and for this reason, actually, I'm going to take back what I said earlier, and every manager really ought to read this, is the thing about goals in no job i have ever done has anybody taken me to one side and said these are the goals of your job here it is this is what you're going to be judged well, that, against that's
2: because you're you're famously disdainful of career appraisals which i love <laughs> and which always set goals Goals oh, that no. I can
0: solve. No, 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 no. They are absolutely pathetic. You've got to have your five goals and they can be anything you can think of. The whole thing's a complete charade. It's, and it's not. shouldn't be at the appraisal stage. It should be at the when you are hired. It should be explained to you on your first date why you've been hired, and precisely what it is you're supposed to be doing. And I suspect that 99% of people who are in employment don't... No one's actually bothered to have that conversation with them. It's partly because the managers don't really know what everyone is supposed to be doing. That's so true. you don't have a hope. And so if you can actually do this, I think the difference is phenomenal. I
2: think the other thing that's good about this and is that the goals are also... Part of a constant feedback, and so I'm with you on the career appraisal once a year or once, ever, even once every yeah. six months, doesn't serve any purpose. It creates stress. It's kind of mm. but the the constant feedback, which is one of the things that they emphasise, and this. First came out when? In the 1980s? 1982. So, I mean, it is, from that point of view, however blandly written, it does identify some of the things that are still important. And it, that's perhaps why it sold the £13 million. He, yes. suge- he
1: suggests the goals once a week, doesn't he, that managers go through with their, with their employees... Once a week. But the you goals. see, big companies
2: like Accenture are, are discovering this as now as though it's mm. some kind of extraordinary breakthrough that they mm. realize they mm. have to give constant mm. feedback as mm. they redo mm. their performance appraisal system. But, but, so, and yet it was being written about already. Well, yeah. ex-
0: except that I don't want to be too excited about this book because it, is, it <laughs> is based on a lie. And the lie is absolutely enormous. The lie is that this takes one minute. Um, Good if. Point. If you are actually thinking about clear goals, that isn't a quick thing. That takes quite a long time. But but it is this constant feedback. If you are trying to catch somebody, the whole point of both the bollocking and the praise is that you do it in the minute. It's no point in doing it, you know, the next day. If you are waiting for people either to do something right or to do something wrong, you're watching them. The whole time so the idea that the one minute manager is just twiddling his thumbs looking out of the window waiting for another young man to hand down the wisdom (laughs) just doesn't that you know that just doesn't work so there's that but the other thing that I thought was psychologically fascinating is that he says so you set the goals then you wait you lie in wait for for your employee to do something praiseworthy You praise them, but then they understand the process so well that you don't need to praise them at all anymore. They praise themselves. Well, that is based on a very different uh, model of human nature than any I've ever come across. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not ready to start self-praising, thank you very much. I really want it from other people, and I think that's a human weakness that I share with lots of others.
2: Yeah, totally agree about the constant feedback. I mean, people don't spend enough time. That's the whole reason why appraisals don't work, however they're structured is because people think they can do them in one minute so in that sense they're promoting that kind of fallacy that's 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 dangerous stuff yes completely um and and i would say being a kind of interested in the bulkier business book prize winning type business books that depresses me even so despite my admiration for their success in turning something so short into something so Um, uh, enriching, self-enriching in their their (laughs) case, uh, depresses me that this is the kind of book that people are still picking off the shelves.
0: uh, But should it? Because that key message about goals is, I suspect, worth any of the more convoluted messages in any of the books that have won our FT Business Book Prize.
2: Well, I'm not sure I'd go with as far as that about the winners. I'd certainly go about the other 9,999 books mm, that didn't books, win our marvellous prize not winning yeah. our prize uh, there, there are plenty that are filling shelves that need not and could be replaced with this which are retailing similar similar ideas the, and the fable, of course, has become a kind of uh, fantastic money spinner. I mean, the co-author yep. of Ken Blanchard, Spencer Johnson, wrote Who Moved My Cheese, mm. still, I think, an even bigger seller than uh, than this book.
0: But you see, that was interesting because I thought that Who Moved My Cheese was so stomach-churning. It's horrible little parable about sort of mice or whatever it was. Yes. I really just couldn't get beyond the second page. I felt so patronised by it. But this one is the beautiful sort of simple first model yes. that... I didn't think was patronizing
2: particularly they've, Yes, they've taken out. they have taken out they, they've made it so simple that it actually does have that ability to be be slightly tweaked and resold yeah. and they've they yeah. produced lots of derivative versions. There is a rather horrid story which I don't think works about pigeons and being oh. like a pigeon, which is yeah. one of the ones mm. that uh, I found un, unattractive. I'll start with a pigeon example and then move on to people, said the manager. Just remember, young man, people are not pigeons people are more complicated yeah. <laughs> well, he's well right I don't there. know
0: he is right there but I was sort of nodding in agreement because yes he's right so, so yeah and I didn't mind the pigeon example just in case anyone would like to hear the pigeon example the point of the pigeon example I think if I understood it simple though it was is that there's no point in setting the goal of the final thing that you've got to do because the pigeon will never understand you have to set a goal that is reachable and then praise that and you know I thought all of that actually meant people were very like pigeons in that particular respect and so i I quite
2: liked it well only grateful that they resisted the temptation to produce a whole pigeon fable yes
0: exactly
1: which is what (laughs) they did with whom of my blinking cheese exactly and he's big on the power of the pause isn't he in in each of the three Mm. lessons a pause comes into whether you're setting a goal or whether you're praising or whether you're reprimanding or redirecting or whatever you're doing you have to pause well, we're all pausing now as we <laughs> as we take I'm in what you said. I mean,
0: uh, yeah, I thought the pause was quite good. I like the pause. The pause makes the manager very in charge of it, and it's quite easy when certainly when you're doing the reprimand to sort of gabble away because it's all so stressful and difficult. But if you do that and then you pause, I think it does make the penny drop. The the thing that I was a bit more <laughs> doubtful about was he's also a great fan of the manager touching the other person now I <laughs> really do not want to be touched by anybody who manages me at all yeah and
2: actually I was I, that made me think when I read it about I don't want to get us onto a, a, a distraction here but uh, that moment in the meeting between Trump and Obama the first meeting in the White House after uh, Trump had become president-elect where where Obama reaches over and touches Trump Mm. and I thought he's been reading the one minute man. Yeah, he has. And
0: and, I mean, he's right that 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 touch is very powerful. But just as I was sort of scribbling no and no way down the margin and don't let anyone ever touch me, I I was sort of I don't know if I was pleased or disappointed to see that they actually write something very sensible at the end of the book, saying that you know touch is incredibly powerful, but if you get it wrong, it does a lot of
1: you'll be straight to HR.
0: Yeah, you'll be straight to (laughs) HR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only that, you'll be straight to HR. But but you know to
2: for a redirect
0: for a redirect. Yep, yeah, you need to make yeah. sure that the person is um, okay with being touched
1: before you do that. Now that seems to have been edited out of the new one-minute oh, really? manager because the ver- version I read did no touching, not, no touching, didn't mention touching.
0: This uh, God, this column that I'm going to write comparing <laughs> the two is, is says it all about how management culture has been flushed down the loo since 1982. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, all, yeah,
2: yeah, all the things we seem to have admired about. This rather slight book have, seem a- to have, a- been, a- adjusted. have I mean, been adjusted. I mean, my admiration yeah. <laughs> for them is actually ebbing away minute by minute. The by minute yeah. yeah.
1: And what did you think of the manager himself? This omnipotent character, the one-minute manager,
2: Andrew. Well, I mean, I write a lot about top-down managers, and mm. you know how poor an example that is. And indeed, in the case of Trump himself, as being a kind of top-down management icon and i don't like the idea of that but I, I i kind of forgave it in this case partly because it sort of predates the 1990s rise of the you know, kind of imperial ceo and in that sense i think that i think the way that they do it as a i don't want to overstate it but they do drain it at the same time as draining the prose of any interest they also drain it of any anything you can latch on to really criticize the idea of a of, of a manager with a kind of, as you put it, biblical mm. role here. And I didn't jar with me quite as much as I thought it might, although perhaps I'd been kind mm. of drawn into the uh, the style a bit too much by then. Well,
0: I'm much keener than you are on people being given instructions and top-down leadership and all of that. I think that the alternative is, is quite often a fudge, is also top-down, but we just have to lie and pretend it isn't. So I love this because it's true and clear. I mean, there was no attempt made to make the manager into a person. I mean, so that you know, no, a entire to... cipher, and, yes, and, and, exactly. and indeed, other
2: people later in the book, people turn into the one-minute yes, manager exactly. themselves. So it's a concept
0: rather yeah. than a. It's yes. a concept rather than than a person. And I thought, as a concept, it was really pretty good. Apart from, as I've said, the lie that it takes one minute. I think it's jolly hard work being a one-minute manager.
1: I'd like to bring in Yanina Conboy, our producer, who has been rummaging in the FT library to find out how we covered the book in the past. Yanina, what
3: did you find? Well, the FT never actually did a review of the book, but it has been referenced a lot, as you can imagine, and compared with other business books. So I've picked out three choices that I I thought were quite interesting. Okay, The first is a management piece called Why America is Just Wild About Wisdom by Terry Dodsworth. When did we publish this? We published (laughs) this in 1986. What's interesting is that before Blanchard and Spencer Johnson, there were no sort of like business bestsellers. Occult business books—is that what he believes? Is that true, Andrew? That's no,
2: probably true. Yes, I mean, there were, everything was a little bit kind of academic. There was Peter Drucker, was beginning to write very clearly about management, but I mean, he was writing in a kind of analytical way, and there were huge libraries full of rather dull tomes analysing mm. management. So it's not the first business book, but the first one probably to popularise, or one of the first ones to popularise in this way.
1: So the first mass-produced, popular, cheap. Business book, easy to understand, first
2: clear. Yeah, I think they hit on something, as I said. I'm quite admiring of that. Wish I'd been there and done the same thing.
3: (laughs) Well, the piece says, Clearly something radical happened in the early 1980s to create the differences between today's market and those of yesteryear, differences which lie partly in the period in which the books were produced and partly in the approach of the authors the turning point in the popularity of US business writers and speakers is generally located around 1981 in the year when paradoxically the country began to turn into deep recession. So Blanchard along with his Cornell contemporaries were sort of like the beginnings of these, this great business book trend market yeah Essentially, <laughs> it's kind of never really <laughs> let up what else did you find we ran a series of four articles about business gurus and the journalist spoke to Blanchard and what was interesting is Blanchard actually talked about how they went about creating the book how they structured it and why they decided to do it the way they wanted to do it what did she say what they did is they put the book through about four different drafts, mm-hmm. extensively altering the text to meet the criticisms of around 1,500 managers who actually looked at it before it was published. Uh, so
1: I'm a oh, bit sorry. No, no no. no. I was going to say that, that this is a really interesting process. They, they, they crowdsourced the story of the one-minute manager. I guess you could put it like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm
0: sort of slightly dubious. It sort of feels like if you write something just eye-poppingly simple stroke simplistic, <laughs> you have to pretend that the process by which it's being composed is um, very complicated. It just says in the introduction, in this brief story, we present you with a great deal of what we have learned from our studies in medicine and in the behavioural sciences, of how people work best with other people. So, I, so there's this great sort of hype and pretense that it's all very scientifically based. Um,
2: well, the interesting the interesting about that is that actually a lot of the, the the fad, which I think is just beginning to ebb now in business books, is actually to cite all the science. So, in a way, what you've got is the one-minute manager um, and written, in, written in, in tales from reality. So, in a way, we've gone from the fable to the reality. And,
0: and actually, give me the fable any day. You know, I can't bear it in business books when you've got the sort of pseudo-scientific references to sort of parts of your brain and how they're working and what they're supposed to be doing at different points as you manage people.
1: Yanina, what else did you find?
3: Um, I found another piece by Stefan Stern, headlined All You Need to Know About the Perils of Management Fads. Um, When
1: when did he write? He still writes for the FT. When
3: did he write? This was May 2007. Mm -hmm. And actually, he is in defence of One Minute Manager, to a point. And he concludes that the lesson is that small books about real, practical things can be useful. Small books about big, complicated things are unlikely to be much good, though they may sell well and small books about small, meaningless things are worthless. Still, the fad machine is unlikely to seize up any time soon, and eternal vigilance is required to monitor its output.
0: I've always thought that Stefan Stern was a genius, and I, I, I agree with every word there. I bet you two, <laughs> do yeah, well. absolutely, yeah. Andrew, you're nodding. Yes.
1: Lucy, can you give us a one-sentence bluffer's guide to the one-minute manager?
0: If you're managing anyone, you must decide what they are supposed to be doing and tell them. You must then tell them if they are doing it right or not. Frequently, as they go along. Very good.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much. That was a sort of five second, one minute manager digest. You're the digest of the the digest of the digest.
1: Our next challenge is set by FT columnist Emma Jacobs. Her book, Sex and the Single Girl by Helen Gurley Brown. Here's Emma with her pitch. When I was considering my business classic, I wanted to look at a topic I've written a fair amount about women at work. I looked at various books, Lean In by Sheryl Sandberg or Anne-Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business, but I wasn't convinced that these will stand the test of time. They're good, lively reads that raise important issues, but I don't think people will be reading them in 50 years' time. I realised, to my embarrassment, <laughs> that I hadn't read Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl, published in 1962. There are chapters on work and how to use your sexuality in the workplace, which may make 21st century readers balk. but hear me out. I wondered whether we could learn something from the experience of working women fifty years ago. And I found out we can. You can join the discussion by tweeting us at FtworkCareers with the hashtag FtbizBooks or you can email us at businessbookclub at Ft.com. We'll be back in the studio with Emma in two weeks' time, and we very much hope you will join us. In the meantime, thank you to Lucy Calloway and to Andrew Hill and to Yanina Conboy and thank you for listening.